Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back with another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson here to try to help you understand what it takes to get your business to the new level. Matt, what do you want to talk about today? You're not going to believe this, but we're going to talk about the Rochambeau today. We're going to talk about competition, baby. Oh, man. Do you want to do one just for the sake of it? Yeah, let's do Ready, it. Ready, go. Oh. Again. Ah. Oh. Oh. Wow. Wow. Three out of three. Should we Same. Just- I think we both are the hosts on this. That's one. right. All right. All right. So we're going to talk about competition today. What do you think? Well, what about it? I've got a lot of it. I've got a lot of competition. Does it, can you sleep at night? Yeah. There was a time when it might've been a little tougher, but yeah, I can. Well, I mean, if you're, let's see if you're thinking about starting a business, how do you feel about competition? Does that, does that keep you away from starting a new business? How, how, uh, how you know how how paralyzed does that does that get somebody or should that get somebody? I've got a couple ways to look at it. First off, if you're trying to start a business in an industry that has no competition, I might actually look at it and say, "Am I first or am I just way off here?" That's right. Because it's a big world and there's a lot of people doing a lot of the same things. Uh, market size and competition can oftentimes indicate that there is demand. I think you have a great point. There's, there are definitely things like say solar panels for a house, like all these different, you know, electric cars, like all these sort of things that might be real big trends today that maybe they could have happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but the market wasn't ready for it. Right. So sometimes it's timing. I oftentimes tell people that I, I don't believe that there are any original ideas left. And I'm looking at Mr. Watson shaking his head while I say that because I think he agrees. So the likelihood that you're first or something is is very small. Now, with that being said, you can have too much competition, right? In some ways, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And I I think there are some some books out there that would probably tell you that most markets consolidate down to a market or two or three leaders. Now, that doesn't mean there's still not you know, a whole lot of other people in the space that have their niche or their piece. Um, but a lot of industries, like we have Uber and we have Lyft, and you know, there, there's a whole lot of different things and different types of businesses like that, where you got two or three companies that kind of are the leader. But take Uber and Lyft, for example. You know, we've got other providers here in the Kansas City area, like Ztrip and stuff like that. They're, they're here. They're, they're in business. They're successful. You know, there's might be two or three that uh, are the unicorns that are worth a billion dollars or whatever, but there's probably just as many other smaller competitors that are still out there. Do you know who Jack Welsh is? I do know that name. You, you've heard the name, right? Yes. Okay, so Jack Welsh is very well known. He was at one point the CEO of, of GE. And for those of you that don't know, GE makes everything. They have their hands in a ton of different businesses. So here he comes in to the business and he looks at all these different things that they do. And, you know, there was a lot of things that they were the number 20 person on the list or company on the list. So what he immediately started doing, and they ended up calling him Neutron Jack because he just started selling off all of these uh, 
these divisions of GE. And some people said he was crazy. Like, we have market share. He said, if you're not first or second, you're probably going out of business. And that's not always the case. But much like you just said, you know, you usually narrow these things down to a very short list of people that are players. So I think when you're looking at the overall competition that you're going to be up against, first off, you have to figure out, well, how far, how much further down the road are these people? And then with that, you've also got to give some consideration to whether or not you're going to be able to catch up and compete. I I mentioned uh, a couple episodes ago, with Gigabook, we just gave up. We surrendered immediately on certain industry types, uh, mainly food. We didn't want to compete with Open Table. That game was over before we even started. So, you know, the, that in that situation, yeah, the competition did scare us off because well, it was just not going to happen. Well, I think in a lot of markets, it does come down to two or three really big players. But that doesn't mean there's lots of other little or fish in the sea, right? I right. mean, there's... There, there's always people that have a specific speciality or whatever. And sometimes I would actually argue that markets that have consolidated down that far are ripe for disruption because if everybody uses that one thing, there, that one company is probably not being as innovative either. And the, these really big companies, one thing I've really learned, you know, I, I sold my first business and, you know, it's been a few years and they, you know, how much innovation have they done, right, over that, that, that period of time? And these big companies don't take risk, right? And on, as entrepreneurs, we take risk. That's, that's in our blood. That's what we do. And I think that's our opportunity is a lot of these big, big companies, yeah, maybe it's a small market or it's, you know, it's a small number of people that kind of own the market, but they're not going to take risk for what some of the new things are in those industries. And if you can come in and are willing to take the risk and own a part of the market, you could be really successful. There's a lot to be said about, have you played the game Battleship, Matt? Oh, absolutely. Okay. What's the hardest ship to hit? The smallest one. Right. Well, that can be your business. If, right. you're, if you're small and you're nimble, these large companies have a very hard time maneuvering and making changes. And I like to compare it to trying to turn a battleship around in a swimming pool. Well, here, here's, to me, one of the biggest problems they have is if you're a publicly traded company and you do $100 million a year in revenue, you've got kind of a, a board and a company charter that says something along the lines of, we got to grow 14% a year. we got to increase revenues by $14 million. That's a big number, right? So they're looking for big opportunities. Uh, us little guys, we're like, hey, we'd love to just have $14 million. And we're, we're willing to, to do a lot of different things to get the little pieces and do this and do that, where these big companies have to make big moves. And, and that's why you see a lot of companies that they go up market, like they start out small and they grow and they get bigger and bigger. Then all of a sudden their customer base and the type of company that they're targeting gets bigger because they're trying to move those numbers bigger and bigger and bigger, right? They're, they're, you know, when they got to go from 100 million to 114 million, they've got to find some whales. They, you know, to to the example of GE, when you're a company that's doing billions of dollars, those little business units they have are rounding errors, and for them, they'd rather just discard the rounding errors. To us, those rounding errors are huge. We'd be really happy, right? But to them, it's different. 
we've made a lot of uh, analogies to sea creatures here, whales and minnows and different fish. Well, you know, all those fish are in there, they're making a living and they all do things a little differently. You know, there's, there's fish that literally live in an ecosystem that do nothing but wait for the whale to discard or have something else, you know, come out. And and I'm not saying that you should try to build a business that's a bottom feeder, but you have a lot of opportunity. Now, Matt, when you sold your company, it was to a bigger company, right? It was. Okay. So if your goal is to have a startup, all right. When I, I build startups because I want someone to buy them. I mean, it's the exit. It's it's that big check with extra commas on it that I lay my hat on my pillow and dream about at night. Well, and, and I, so part of that ecosystem comes back to the risk and the startups and innovation, right? These big companies do not take risk. And in some ways, I can really relate to that because my last company, we, we got to a point where we were doing really, really well. I mean, we were, we were killing it. And I had conversations with our, our CEO, who was my main business partner. He'd say, Matt, don't make any more changes to the software. We are selling stuff faster than we, we can. And the last thing we want is any hiccups at all. Like, just keep doing what we're doing. Don't make, don't take any risk because we're just killing it. And it's like, that's where innovation starts to die, right? But we were doing so good that we didn't need to innovate anymore. We were trying to milk the cow that we had. Right. And these big companies get into that mode. And then eventually they're trying to figure out how to grow faster. And then that's where they got to go acquire one of these littler companies. And I, I tell people all the time, you know, a lot of the companies that potentially could acquire Stackify, like they'd rather write a check for $200 million than $20 million because they, they want to they also buy something that doesn't necessarily have a lot of risk in it. They, they just want to grow it. They want to buy something that they can grow. They, they, they're very risk adverse. And that's our opportunity as entrepreneurs is we're willing to bet the farm and take the risk. These big companies aren't. So how much time do you spend worried about your competition? None. I'm the same. I mean, they, they're going to do whatever they do. I agree. And with that, I think that sitting around and obsessing about your competitors, your competitors' project or products, your competitors' moves, it is a huge distraction. I think it's okay to, it's good to be aware of what's going on. You want to, I, I like to say you should have your finger on the pulse of your business or on the pulse of your industry. You need to understand the market. Right. You need to understand the industry right. and the market. Right. right. But that's completely different than sitting there obsessed with every single move that your competitor makes. And that, I think that that can be something that kills innovation as well, because you're going to end up, be, well, you're going to be a copycat. You're going to be concerned with keeping up. And, you know, where do you stand on that? Like, at what point do you say, well, am I just copying what someone else is doing? And are you even willing to do that? I think there are certain features you have to have that are, you know, put you at at par with your competition, right? There are certain things like you just kind of, you kind of got to do, but then I think you always want to figure out how to differentiate yourself. So for example, with Stackify, a lot of our competitors are focused on um, customers uh, for IT operations. Like the IT department is the buyer, where for us, we're focused on the software development team as the buyer. And so because of that, our feature set is a little different. How we go to market is different. Our advertising, our messaging, all of that is a little different. But under the covers, the product is probably 80% the same. It's that 20% on the top that makes us unique and makes us different. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, 
what, how do you feel about people that are coming up on your tail then? You know, most of the time you can see them coming. And, and the reason I say that is, uh, think about my old business. We were signing up 50 to 100 new accounts a month. And, you know, if, if you're the big guy who's got thousands of customers, you can see that little fish coming from a long ways away. It's like the little shark just keeps coming. And, and you know, they're not going to go from zero to thousands overnight. They're going to get 50 and another 50 and another 50. And you can just see them coming. And these, these big, big corporations just sit back and they, they, they watch them. And at some point in time, they throw enough money at them, they go away. Do you know that I probably have less competition now than I had last year? That's good. Yeah, but do you know why? Why? Because what we do is hard. It's it complex. is hard. It's, it's got a zillion variables, and it does a whole lot of different stuff. And I've literally watched a lot of my competition die on the vine. Well, and I, I think, you know, as you're starting a new company, you have to kind of figure out, do you, do you want to be the snail? that's just plotting along and you're, you're make, maybe making a few bucks and you're successful. That snail wins the race sometimes. Yeah. Though. Or are you trying to go own the market? You're, you're trying to be the whale. And to do that, a lot of times you got to go raise a bunch of capital and you're, you're, that's a whole different business strategy, right? Then something that could be a little side project. Maybe you have one or two employees and you just have a successful sort of lifestyle business. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, now you're gonna, not going to ring the bell at Wall Street anytime soon or anything, right? But you can be that small company that just kind of plots along. You can be the snail at the bottom, the bottom feeder. Um, or if you want to be the biggest whale in the ocean, that's a whole different thing. So what do you do? So here you are in a market that began as a niche or it didn't have any whales in, in the actual category. What do you do? when all of a sudden a company of a whale proportion now enters your space? Because I don't know if you know this, but this happened to Gigabook last year. Microsoft launched its own booking platform. Okay. And I actually had one of our employees come and ask me, he said, so are we going to quit? I said, are you kidding me? This is probably the biggest form of validation that we have received in the last five years. Like Microsoft just admitted that this is so legit right and this is such a valid part of future business operations so then we actually did take a few minutes to go and look at the competition and the sentiment changed because we realized oh my we have built a product that is better than microsoft's and you know there was just little things you talk about that 80 percent being similar and i'm not going to get down on their product because you know obviously they're microsoft but with that sometimes your competition can can validate what you're doing it can you know i would love to have the call from microsoft about purchasing what we do they can afford the kind of check that i'd like to see from them now i i don't know about that it, it may cost them more money to stop and write the check they might in my, I, I'm willing to test that okay. theory and we can see where that comes down. So sometimes geography has something to do with your overall market and your competition. How do you take that into uh, consideration when you're looking at everything with your competition? Well, for example, we have a competitor that's only in China. They only service China. That's, that's all they do. I didn't even know they existed until recently. Um, and I don't remember the name of it, but there's some sort of like VC sort of accelerator company now that I think they're in Europe where their whole business model is to find successful companies 
that have been in the U.S. and then knock them off, but do them in another region. And I, I think there is absolutely a market for that. And you know, one of the one of the problems we had at my last company is we were focused only on the U.S. the USA. And the way we looked at it is the U.S. was such a big market that it it was such a big ocean that we didn't need to go chase Europe or Australia or any other market. And that that was opportunity for somebody else who wanted to, right? Like th- there was only so much we could do in our market that it didn't make sense for us to stretch ourselves in other places. So that's an opportunity for other people. Does that factor into how you present yourself and your product against your competitors? I think it can. Um, for example, depending on what type of business you're doing, there's all sort of uh, data privacy laws in different countries. Uh, like in the EU, they're they're just passing a new set of stuff and um, depending on what you're doing, you know, one key advantage for you could be you go set up a data center in the EU and, and you focus on that. Like we are compliant with the laws in this area and we're hosted there and we translate, translate your website to be in those languages, all that sort of stuff. You know, there was a specific geographic concern that we ran into and, you know, we have a gigabook has a lot of Canadian users and the, the, uh, uh conversion rate of Canadian dollar to us basically means that they're paying about 40% more and we couldn't figure it out. You know, we had it it, for a little bit and, you know, it was as simple as just asking, but, you know, we had five or six Canadian people, you know, Canadian clients and users complaining about our pricing. We're like, wow, we're like legitimately the lowest in the industry. Are you just complainers? And then we just asked one of them. They said, well, you know, this isn't, 20, you know, or $38 a month for us, it's actually more like 50 or 55. And with some of that, for some of our larger users, um, we've actually had to, in order to remain competitive, have given some small discount codes or different things like that. Cause you know, we have to respect the hustle that they're in too and wanting to get that type of business. And, you know, that was something until it came up, we hadn't given any consideration for now with that, We've also, you know, obviously people all around the world take appointment bookings and do different stuff like that. So now, you know, you look at this, there's several hundred languages in the country and, or excuse me, in the world, and you have all these different considerations. And I don't speak Mandarin. I can't really convert Gigabook to Chinese. Like, what's that going to take? And like, so sometimes it might be worth it and sometimes it might not. You have to ask yourself the question, would I, ra- would I rather be the number one this in New Zealand, which might not seem that incredibly attractive, but it probably has a hundred million people there or something, you know, it could be a huge market anyway. Now, would I rather be number one there or would I rather be number 33 here? And with that, what percentage of a market share do you want to try to capture? Because I think from the outside looking in, we come into startups and different ventures and we say, you know what, if I can only get, if I can get 15% of the market share, we'll be in great shape. Like, is that, is that a reality in most industries? Well, I think it's good to understand the market size, you know, so for our industry, even a medium sized market, we're in a Gartner says it's like a $25 billion market. Uh, the sub segment of that that we're in is about 5 billion. Um, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, I'd be perfectly happy with getting my like 0.1% of that or something. Right. Um, and, but, but that's the problem you run into is sometimes you go to VCs and investors and if, if you can't be 
the number one company in that market, they may not want to invest in you. Or if there's already somebody who's a clear leader in that market, then they may not invest in you. And, you know, people, people say stuff that to me, like, like that to me, like, Oh, you have a competitor that does $400 million a year in revenue. How are you going to compete with them? How are you going to be successful? I'm like, you know, I could be wildly successful with $40 million a year in revenue. Like I'd be perfectly happy with that. Um, you don't always have to be the market leader. You can just have your, your piece. Um, well, you know, it's, it's revenue minus expenses equals profit, right? That's right. And, okay. and profit is not a man with a white beard. Yes. But we sh- if we find him, we should have him on the show because he could probably tell us a lot about what industries and trends are coming towards that us. That would be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll broadcast that issue or that episode because I think we'll probably want to maybe get ahead on his advice. You think there. he would play Rochambeau with us? Yeah, but he wouldn't tie three times in a row. He'd win every time. That'd be not, that would not be fun. So, you know, all right. So do you think that how you solve the problem has everything to do with your success compared to your competition? Well, I think if you take, um, you know, Stackify or, or Gigabook, either one's an example, we solve a lot of problems and we, we solve a lot of problems for different people. And sometimes it's just the marketing that you put into it to, that talks about the problem you solve. Like, I mean, it, it's like, you know, a hammer or any other sort of tool. I mean, you, you can talk about its values in a lot of different ways. And some of your competition are very focused on a specific problem you solve with the tool where you could be have the same tool, but just be totally focused on a different solution and problem. And, you know, again, that gets back to that, like top 20%, but some of it is just marketing. It's just the marketing, the product packaging, pricing, all of those things to a specific market. You you mentioned earlier, like, oh, when we sell to Canada, maybe we package it differently. We price it differently. You know, for some, it's how you, um, it's how you put those pieces together and price it. How do you solve the problem of coming in second? Well, I think you acknowledge that you're the first loser. I think you uh, you learn from it. And I, I, I know what you're hinting about here. What are you hinting about? Well, I think as you're aware, recently we came in second. We meaning Gigabook. Um, we had it was you know just another day at the office dealing with people that were inquiring about using our service within their company. But you have enterprise situations that are bigger fish. Those are your whales as a salesperson. And, um, you know, we were in a 30 company pool to start with. And we ended up, we got all the way down to the, you know, the bracket had, had eliminated everyone else down to us and one other person and, or one other company. And we came in second. So, you know, that doesn't feel good, but how do you handle that? And how do you deal with that? And then I'll tell you, tell you my, my way of dealing with it. Well, I think a lot of them are lessons learned. And at my at my last company, we used to go through that stuff a lot with RFPs. We'd have big automotive manufacturers that would come to us and say, hey, we're going to do this, that, and the other. We want you to fill out this giant RFP. What's an RFP? Request for proposal. Okay. And um, basically, they'd send us these giant checklists of what does right. our product do? How does it work? Yep. Yada, yada, yada. And we would submit this stuff. And you know what? The first time, first few times you do it, you lose, you come in second or last or whatever, but eventually you, you get the experience and you figure out what they're looking for. What is it going to take to win this eventually? And after I left, 
you know, they started winning some deals. Like they had done big deals with Lexus and some different people. Like every Lexus website in the world was done was done by them. And so they won some of those big deals eventually. Uh, but I think it's, you have to play the game a little bit, but I think you also can't live and breathe by that. Like you have to know you're playing the game and you're like, yeah, hey, we're probably not going to win this, but how much effort do we put into it to learn? Like it's a learning experience. I think the first few times. I am a sociopath when it comes to this kind of stuff. Um, it's really easy at first to get mad and to be upset. Well, first off, I'm also thankful that we're able to come in second out of 30. Absolutely. That's a huge accomplishment, right? In, but in the game of sales, if you're not first, you're last, without a doubt. So with that, you have to look for areas that you can improve. And the thing that, I, you know, when I got that recent news about coming in second on this proposal, what good is being upset going to do? It's not going to, you know unless I can channel that into something positive and I can do something better next time, it really isn't productive to get, you know, upset about it. Now, am I upset that we didn't get the bid? Sure. But not in a way that I'm yelling, that I'm angry, that I'm legitimately like having this toxic rainstorm in my mind and my body about everything that's going on. I do use that kind of stuff as motivation to do better. And I, I do consider all the things like, you know, what in this particular case, we lost to a competitor that did have a very specific background servicing companies like we were bidding towards. So I, I understood why we didn't get it. Now, with that, that's difficult to change. But perhaps there's one thing and you'll, you, you, need, you need to look for these repeating trends. Am I not getting the deal because of this? And then you, that same reason, that same reason, that same reason. That's a pretty good way to start forming your strategy towards future bids. You know what? I keep losing on this particular checkpoint. Well, that's probably where we should be handling it. Now, with that, when we talk about providing services for people, do you think that enterprise accounts are 100% of the time always good? They, they, they come with the pros and cons, right? So, you know, my last company is a good example of this. We had one manufacturer that reached out to us and I think we won. Like, we're like, we want, we want you guys. We want uh, every one of our car dealerships, we want to use your software. But they only wanted to pay us like $400 a month. Or something like that. And our average customer paid us $1,500 a month. We're like, no, we're not going to do it. We'll go sell up. We're going to go sign up every one of your dealers anyways for $1,500 a month. Why would we take $400 a month from you? And then at any point in time, you could cancel all of it too, right? Like, why don't we just go collect all the little fish by ourselves? And um, yeah, I mean, in all of these things, there's pros and cons, right? I mean, it'd also be nice to get that big fat check from them. Yes. and that, so, And that's the decision you have to make. But you need to keep in mind, the bigger the account, the more needs it's going to have, the more stuff you're going to have to do. And if you're selling something like software, you're quite possibly going to have to build or customize something for these kind of accounts because that's what they're after. They could, if they could just sign up for your service and do that you know, 8,000 times, then that would be easy enough. So you have to also think about you know, I, I imagine in your situation that you just mentioned, because here's the thing, margin matters. You know, just because it's a it's a whole lot of revenue, if you have to take on even more expense or if it creates an opportunity cost that 
is so high and we can define opportunity cost as the option we didn't take. And if you have to take everything you do and dedicate it towards one account, are the other 99% of your accounts going to suffer? Because you might find yourself so involved with servicing one particular aspect of your business that the rest of it can get swept under the rug. Or you might not um, meet other measurables or timelines that are pretty important to your overall success. So sometimes it's not the end of the world if you don't get those things, but it, you know, the big accounts certainly help you grow. So in regards to competition, I think we went through a few things here and we've talked about a couple of things. It's not a bad thing. And actually, I think one of the, you know, competition can also stir up things for you. You can ride, you can ride the wave of somebody else, right? Right. There's a market leader, Maybe at Uber or, or Lyft or something like that. And then, you know, we got a little old Z trip here in Kansas City. They're riding the wave. Right. Right. If Uber never came around, maybe Z trip would have never came around. So they're riding the wave. Well, what about other companies like let's uh, use Bungie, Bungie, for example? Bungie's yep. a Kansas City startup, and Matt and I both know Ben Jackson, the founder, and they're a, a pickup. Uh, if you need a pickup truck to come help you pick up the new entertainment center that you bought from Ikea and it won't fit in your smart car, they want that Bungie will help you uh, get a pickup truck and someone to help you. You know, we should have, we should have Ben and the guys from Bungie on here sometime. How do you feel about that? I think it'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, Maybe and they'd come pick us up in a pickup truck. Actually, that's how we should yeah. do it. That would be a good idea, but that's an example of competition. And so here's the thing is Uber and Lyft, are doing the heavy lifting of educating people about this particular kind of on-demand service. So if, you know, a lot of people, I think at Gigabook, we found that, you know, we don't have, I don't have exact numbers on this, but we just assumed that if you signed up for Gigabook, that you signed up for three other services, making us one of four. And that we're going to have to measure up and compete against other people no matter what. Do you, do you think people sign up for Stackify doing the same thing? Do you find that? I think it depends on the company and, and who you're dealing with. I mean, definitely larger companies are probably going to sign up for your competitors and kick the tires a lot more. Um, but I think the smaller the smaller companies may just see something and they're like, oh, this is cool, and they just jump on it. And, sure. And are probably less likely to go through the rigorous kind of acquisition process. Is that why the first space when buying ads on Google is more expensive than all the rest? It probably is. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know about you, just using Google as an example, how many times you do a search and you just sort of click on the first result and don't even really read through all of them. The, the numbers on that are, are and I, I'm going to be very unscientific here, but you know, they, the difference between the first and the third spot for clicking, it's like 70, 40, 10. It's, yeah. Because, you know, most people, once you get the needs met that you're looking for, you're done. Yep, absolutely. Path of least resistance. Yep. We're happy with what we got, even if it's not good. It all depends on what you're shopping for, right? I mean, if you're trying to acquire some software and you're going to spend a million dollars a year on it, you're going to do a little more due diligence, right, than first click. But if it's a simple a simple solution, like I'm looking for an ugly sweater for Christmas, like, okay, first result, whatever, I'm going to look at them. You can find an unlimited supply of those at my house. <laughs> In most sizes. Do you have any in gold? Probably. Okay. I, I have quite a few. I was quite the ugly sweater connoisseur. Um, I'll probably wear one to your Christmas party now that Perfect. we mentioned it. Yeah, I have one that has stockings sewed to it and stuff, and we can put goodies in the pouches. Um, so when you talk to your clients or prospective clients about your competition, do you ever say bad stuff? You know, I, I think we 
usually focus on where we're different. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, we're, uh, you know, my example earlier, like, Hey, if you're looking for a product like ours for the IT department, you know, maybe that, maybe that's, maybe we're not the best fit, but if you're looking for it for software developers, we're the best fit. And this I, is why I never say bad stuff about my competition. You know why? Why? No one wants to hear you air your dirty laundry, hang out your dirty laundry and air your grievances with your competition. In fact, it probably stands a greater chance of you not getting that client because negativity isn't really the right way to get a new client in, you know, there's, it's easy to sometimes get salty with your competition, um, especially if they've been handing it to you for a little bit and you have to keep hearing, you know, this and that, and, you know, they do this and they do that. Okay. That's great. Well, why aren't you using them then? Why are you even talking to me? Um, see that kind of reaction isn't going to really endear your, your client to you. Um, I focus on, on, I have an acronym FAB features, advantages, benefits, and if I'm going to talk about something and, I'll, and if I'm going to talk about my competition, I'll say, you know what, I'm not totally, I'm not the expert on what they do. I have a pretty good idea of it. We have some similar features. Here's the advantages that we have over that. And these are the benefits that those advantages produce. Because that's what people are going to, are, are into. That's what they want to buy from you. And they're not necessarily on the line with you to hear you talk about why the other five competitors are terrible. So it's, I think it's good to avoid that. It's, you know, I, I, I really just always take the high road in, in that regard. And now at the same time, if you have clients that are coming over from your competitor, I use this. I feel that that is a golden opportunity to, so I say, Matt, are you using any booking software right now? Yes. Well, I know you're using Gigabook, but let's say you were using something before that and you're now talking to me. I'd say, could you tell me what they're not doing that you need done? And at that point, now you have a client telling you exactly what you need to do for them in order to get their business. So I've got a great story on that. So in my last company, we did CRM for car dealers. And most of the, the most of our competitors, it seemed like every one of them had these two or three little features that everybody loved. And what we did is we kept listening to customer feedback, like you mentioned, and we'd figure out like, oh, if they're using product X, we know that they really like A, B, and C. And so we really would cater our demonstrations and everything too. Like you get on the phone with somebody like, oh, you have that product. Okay, well, hey, we also do A, B, and C. So we're, we're going to, you know, those are things that are par. Like, so when you make the switch, you're not going to be giving those three things up. But here's the other 10 things that are the reason you're going to make the switch. Because what, what we find more often than not is a lot of times get, people get really attached to some like weird specific feature about a product. And so, for example, at StackFi, one of the features we don't have is like a service mapping diagramming thing that like draws charts, basically, and we don't do it. And we're like, well, that's just not something we do. And But we know from one of our competition, com- competitors, they like beat that into their customers about how important that is. So we know every single time we talk to them, we're like, hey, we don't do that. If that is the number one thing you're after, sorry. But you, and, and we know like eventually that's a feature we got to build. But what, what you got to learn is like where you win and lose. And if there's little bells and whistles that you know your competition has, can you, you know, are those satisfiers that you've got to build just to make you even par with your comp- your competition. Well, in the last episode that we recorded, I, I mentioned other than the word sold that my favorite four letter word in sales is next. And if, 
it, with the story that you just told, if you have, if those users are so hung up on that one thing that not having it means they're not going to sign up, you're probably wasting your time. You actually are yelling next in some regards by letting them know. And I, I just did this yesterday. I was talking to someone on the phone about Gigabook and they had inquired and they wanted it to do a specific thing. And I had to say, look, we don't do that. And I don't think we're going to do it anytime soon. I had the same thing this week. Yeah, Because there's the thing, I'm just wasting, they're going to figure that out eventually. They're not going to have a good experience. I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting their time. And, you know, I find that people overwhelmingly thank me for that. They said, well, thank you for being so upfront and transparent. And say, hey, I'm going to end up wasting a bunch of time trying to help you get something set up that we don't do. And, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, and these are these obscure cases. There are certain, certainly things that, like you said, we realize that we need to do a better job of in order to get some, some users. So, you know what I think we need to do a better job of? I think we need to settle this paper, scissors, rock, Rochambeau <laughs> war that we're tied in. <laughs> and I want to do that right now before we end this episode. All right, ready? ready? Yes! Ah! DeCourcy wins. You know what? I got to say, Matt, you're on a losing streak. I'm sorry. What is that, three episodes? Yeah, I know. Well, like I said. I mean, at what point do we get to talk about the fact that the DeCourcy paper, scissors, rock machine is a dynasty? It's it's pretty awesome. Uh, somebody should acquire that. I'm willing to talk to you. Are you also that. good in Vegas? Uh, well, we're going to find out. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't think that I feel like any of that kind of stuff goes into the whole idea of, you know, like if you, the genie won't let you wish for more wishes. So it's probably only good for things that really don't matter, like, <laughs> like who gets to host this episode. Anyway, thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Uh, you can also check out our website, startuphustle.xyz. Um, Hope to see you around next time. All right. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.